This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim, and unfortunately Tom wasn't able to join us today, but I have with me Sam Hutchinson. Thank you so much for joining me, Sam. Hi. And just so the listeners can get to know you a little bit better, why don't you talk about a bit of your background in film and how you got into the Masters of Cinema? Well, I run a blog called Cinema Etc. It's at cinemaetc.co.uk. And um, I've been doing that for about 18 months now. Mm. Um, and just been, just quite quite an easy blog to do because I just write about things that I'm interested in. So it's not like a, a job where you're writing about film, being told what to write about. Mm. I just write about things that I'm, that I'm keen to write about. So, yeah. Um, a lot of the article seems to be related to Master Cinema Discs. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do like them. Uh, there's, it's not just a disc, is it? Because you obviously get a lot more in the package each time. So, mm. um, I've learnt about a lot of a lot about older films through Masters of Cinema, and it's helped me to branch out into other things, mm. which is good. Did you do like any sort of cinema studies in uni or? Um, I did not know. <laughs> so this was sort of a way to get into film history, or? It, yeah, it is, and it's almost like a mini. Um, film history course each, mm. each package yeah especially if you get something like the uh, late Mizuguchi box set for example yeah or or passion of Joan of Arc you're getting a lot a lot of booklet in there and there's a yeah. lot of obviously a lot of bonus features so it does give people like me an a-, a good access to older films mm-hmm. do you remember sort of what the first master cinema disc you acquired where you were <laughs> kind of hooked into the series uh yes um i think it was uh, metropolis yeah on dvd so this was the older one without i don't think it had the restored footage in from memory mm. maybe it did uh i think i had a uh i think i had already had it uh, free with a newspaper or something they they put a version out with a with a newspaper in england and um yeah i just picked up the picked up a proper release and um then I saw the number on the side, and it was like a, a red rag to a ball, really, because <laughs> you start you start thinking, "Oh well, there's a there's another sort of twenty eight before this, so I must go and catch the rest of them." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, you wanted to talk about Billy Wilder's Lost Weekend, and do you have like any particular favourites among Billy Wilder? Is this your favourite, or? Um, yeah, um, I haven't seen all of his films. Um, mm. I'm quite excited. I've got um, Stalag 17 in front of me. Oh, I'm yes. going to watch that this week. I've never seen that one. Um, I think he's, his his output is quite varied. Uh, mm. Certainly around the time of The Lost Weekend, it seems very... Um, a lot of the films are quite depressing. Yeah. Uh, and I think he's probably more famous for films like... Uh, well, not more famous, but a lot of people know some like It Heart and The Apartment and uh, the slightly more light-hearted um, sort of with romantic themes in them. But yeah. um, around 1945, when he did Dublin Demity and, and The Lost Weekend um, and Death Mills. I don't, have, you, have you seen Death Mills? I have not. But I saw, I think I've seen most of his other stuff. Uh, Five Grades to Cairo is mm. quite a brilliant war movie. Uh, yeah. The Major and the Minor is more comedic in its tone, but uh, still a good one. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's quite an interesting period of his of his life because mm. um, he'd lost, I think it was his mother and stepfather and, and grandmother in, in the war. Mm. Um, so perhaps he was not... Um, as positive as as he would be in later later life. Mm. Yeah, Wilder for me is someone who he has chunks in every decade, which he releases brilliant movies mm. like Five Grace to Cairo, Double Indemnity, Lost Weekend. Those come within a three-year span almost. Yeah. And you have something like Sunset Boulevard, Ace in the Hole, Starlight 17, all in a three-year span mm. in the 50s. So you can... So to see this is spurts in every century where he releases like top notch cinema. 
Yeah. And other other times in the in that time period, there's some like ditches in the road for me. Like um, I'm not too keen on something like Sabrina, something yeah. like Irma Laduce. Um, yeah, some of these more uh, whimsical films. To yeah. say it that way. I watched one, two, three a couple of weeks ago, um, mm. which is the one set in uh, in Berlin about the yeah. Coca Cola company. I didn't didn't think a lot of that really, mm. um, but I think that was it's probably the worst worst film of his that I've seen. Yeah. But but I've still got a lot of his later career to to dig into. So yeah, so the Lost Weekend, a bit of a background information on that because it was based on. Charles R. Jackson's novel from '44, and the same title. And the story is uh, quite similar in that it's very serious, it's painful, a very uncompromising, frank look at alcohol addiction. Mm. And the novel, it was an improbable success in '44, where Simon and Schuster even rejected it. Um, and telling the author that this wouldn't sell in the midst of the world war because nobody cares about the individual. It's more about togetherness and the community. But within five years, it had sold half a million copies and translated into 14 languages. And the film itself also had an enormous impact on these soldiers who came back combat fatigued from the world war and who were adjusting and struggling with the civilian lives and difficulties and they often turn to alcohol dependence themselves so mm. it it's interesting how this is one of the first movies who actually dare to confront alcoholism as a social issue where before you had films like wc fields or the thin man series who treated almost for laughs but this is a very like blunt look at how alcohol can ruin someone's life. Yeah, um, it's certainly not light-hearted. Um, a lot of the films that I've seen of this sort of era, mm. the al- the person who's uh, an alcoholic is generally sort of comedic relief. Yeah. And there's none of that here, really. It, it's quite a hard watch, really. Mm. And there's these people all around him who are all trying to help him in their own way. Mm. And the only person who can help him is himself. Yeah. And he chooses not to most of the time. Seems like he's caught in this vicious cycle where alcohol, it's ruined his life. He can't write anymore. Mm. Or you could question if he ever could write or if the first one was just a fluke. But he has no friends. The relationship is on the brink of failing. He's alienating everyone. He has no money. Mm. His psychological and physical condition is detrimental. Uh, he's in this vicious cycle where he's contemplating suicide and he self-medicates with alcohol and uses that to sort of get him up and he uses that as as an excuse to almost everything that's good or bad in his life yeah true i think he he says that he's um he writes better when he's drunk yeah Um, but he he doesn't seem to write at all (laughs) no no he he feels the confidence and and in, in some ways he is true that is true because he's He's talking to the barman and um, he's had a, a, just a couple of drinks and then all of a sudden he's describing his story, albeit just his own story. It's not mm. really a, a novel that he's writing, he's just writing about himself. Mm. And he's going into fantastic details, and but then it just carries on every every night. And we, yeah. we see him over, over the course of four, five nights, is it? Um, uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. And never gets any better. Um, mm. Well, well, we'll get to the end, I guess. Yeah, later. <laughs> um, yeah, because that's that's an interesting aspect of the film. But we can get to that. But the movie before we get into like the movie itself, the movie is very close to the novel, except in one aspect. In that Burnham in the novel, he's described as being uh, tormented by a homosexual incident in college. And it's strongly implicating that Burnham is a latent homosexual. And this was omitted from the film and replaced by sort of a writer's block. But do you think that it would have made any difference if it had been something as traumatic as a... or 
traumatic. I don't uh, I don't know what sort of incident it was in college, but something that he clearly suppresses. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I haven't read the novel. No. And I don't know if he was also a writer in the novel. I'm assuming he probably is. Mm-hmm. And I think there are hints in the in the film that something has happened in the past, or or in fact he is a homosexual, which at the time uh, would have been looked down on. Mm-hmm. I think in the in the society, and there's a lot of hints there that the that he should be keeping up appearances. Yeah, and and a lot of the drivers for 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 his actions, or you know. One of the reasons he says he doesn't want to go away to the to the country club with his brother is that everyone will be talking about him. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a scene where he's walking down the street and there's those two ladies that say, uh, "That's the nice man that drinks," <laughs> under their breath as he walks by. Um, and certainly, uh, if he was a homosexual in in New York in 1945, uh, not that I was there, but uh, I don't know how that would have um been seen by his uh, his neighbors for example yeah. i think the the Hayes code was in effect around this time and they might have chosen to lighten the film in that regard um yeah. but i don't think it makes a huge of a difference seeing as the things you said like he's hiding that it seems like he's trying to go under the radar uh, and there are things that he is um, things that he are shame, he's shameful for mm. and whether that's drinking or whether that's an homosexual incident I'm not sure that it makes a huge of a difference in that five night period that we see mm. it feels like he's he, was, he would still have the same issues yeah and, and I think it does work uh, not Revealing everything, yeah, um, and I think that's that's um, one of the successes of the film is that Wilder hasn't hasn't explained everything, mm-hmm. certainly not from the start, mm. um, and it keeps you guessing, and you know you, you're thinking, surely this can't just be because he's a struggling writer. There must be something else that's going on that's driven him to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talks about that, and when he's talking about how he was first published in college and then just that feeling of not reaching your or what you deem to be your own potential the fear of failing I I think that's sort of what the film explains it to be but it it feels like under that surface it it seems to be more than that it feels like there's there's something he can't escape from Mm. An interesting aspect of like the producing side of this film is that the alcohol industry actually they offered to purchase the film's negative from the studio and remove it from circulation. But after the the release and the critical success, they kind of praised it and supported the film. But are you surprised at how the film, considering the time it was made, are you surprised at how treated alcoholism or because it's difficult when we in 2015 view a movie from 1945 and how different times must have been with regards to alcohol yeah i think with a film like this it's important to know a bit more about the the background to it and Mm -hmm. the history of, of and the background to which it was released and um uh, yeah, it's it's hard to put yourself in a position in a different country seventy mm-hmm. years ago, but it it still stands up for me. The film. Yeah, I think Alex Cox he talks about how there are no signs of the World War, even though this was released in forty five, mm-hmm. and that kind of that kind of helps the film for me feel more timeless, and yeah. that it, there are no real like. Um, set pieces that sets it to 1945. It feels more like it could have been any time. Yes, uh, I'm sure that there must have been some conversations saying, "Oh, well, why don't we put in a, uh, a sort of war scene where you know this may, might be a cause, or or not not just that, but you know, give him some more more background as to mm-hmm. why he's turned to this." Mm. But it, it it is timeless in that way. 
because uh, this could this could the same thing could happen to anyone today. Yeah. Uh, Billy Wilder, he was drawn to the material, according to articles I found, because he was working with Raymond Chandler on Double Indemnity. And apparently they had a quite a stressful uh, relationship during their collaboration. And Chandler was himself a recovering alcoholic. He returned to drinking either during or after the film. I couldn't quite make out what. But he made the film in part to try to explain Chandler to himself. And there have been critics who have felt that this film is lacking because they feel it's an outsider looking in. Critics like um, James Agee. I heard the uh, uh, Peter Labuse's recent Cinephiliacs episode. He had an sh- episode on James Agee. And in short, um, he felt that the film was characterized by the fact that this was a non-alcoholic looking in. Uh, via Wilder himself, rather than a film inside the life of an alcoholic, and that it lacks a certain edge or truth to it. Um, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure if I agree with him. It feels, it feels quite tough and not very lenient, or it doesn't lack any sort of understanding in the psychological state that Don Burnham finds himself in, for me at least. Yeah, I, w- I would say I've not I've not uh, listened to this, but um, no. most people who watch it won't be um, alcoholics, alcoholic writers who are trying to get back onto the straight and narrow, or mm-hmm. not trying. In in many ways, when someone is suffering from alcoholism, the people who are damaging most isn't necessarily themselves; it's the people around them, mm-hmm. and we're sort of like a, an additional party to this uh, this tight-knit group who are trying to help them, help him. Um, we're, we're almost like a fly on the wall watching it as well. We're, we're in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a very uh, intimate film, really, mm-hmm. because we're just following this one guy over this weekend. And when, when it starts as well, we it's, it's quite... Um, quite interesting because they the people around him seem very harsh and they um you know that we don't understand why fully why they're being so harsh on him and Mm -hmm. very strict and not leaving him in the apartment on his own and all that sort of thing um and then it slowly unravels as the film progresses and and we we learn more but uh i certainly don't think it's detrimental that we're not Sort of seeing it from uh, from Don's eyes. Uh, no, it helps kind of build build the dramatic structure around it that we are introduced to him through how others view him, and that that is not just this isolated figure who is struggling with this all alone. Because, as you say, the implications of his actions they have repercussions for everyone around him so and we see that the people around him i don't know if because alex cox on the on the supplements he talks about the people around him perhaps being viewed as enablers rather than someone who helps him Mm. i'm not i'm not sure at least with the helen character and the brother wick yeah yeah i'm not sure i view them as enablers as much as they're kind of caught up in it and they are trying to give him as much as they can without being dragged into it in themselves. Yeah, I, I would say that um, Barman, Nat, yeah. I think when he's pouring him a drink and saying at the same time that he shouldn't be drinking anymore, yeah. then I would say that he definitely is an enabler. and that's. But then he's trying to earn a living as well. Mm-hmm. Um and it's somewhat of a stock character in many ways, but certainly the two closest to him, uh, mm. I wouldn't say are enablers at all. Certainly not his brother. No. And also that um, the uh, the Gloria character for me is also one of those who who gives him money but doesn't want him to like fuck up his life basically. Mm. Um, and there's another bartender as well who says he can't give him. He can't give him um, 
booze on credit, but once he gives him money, it's like, I can't stop you from purchasing this. Yeah, so, yeah. quick change, wasn't it, in his attitude? As yeah. soon as the money appears. Exactly. But compare that to someone like Bim inside the, the hospital, the nurse, mm. who is... He comes across as a real, like, cold, cynical bastard who shows no regard for any sort of confidentiality at all, talking yeah. about the other patients and their issues as well. But it seems like he's he comes across as sort of a truth-sayer, where he, he at least lays it out and doesn't soften the blow for anyone. Yeah, and again, that's a case of where we're introduced to him and we don't know any of his background, but... Uh, it's sort of half, in, well, not half implied, but surely he's seen hundreds and hundreds of people yeah. who are who are in the same situation as Don and just uh, ruining their lives, and he's mm-hmm. sort of tired of it. Uh, but uh, no one's helping themselves. Mm. But then there are theories that he's a uh, figment of his imagination as well. I don't I know if you've read is. that. Um, yeah, it seems seem to imply that he's. Uh, doesn't interact with anyone else directly. Um, uh, ha- having read this somewhere, I can't. I haven't been able to watch it again to see if if that's true or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's he's telling him things that really he already knows or should know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm not sure I subscribe to that. Uh, no, because when you see him, the standing inside the ward and they're looking out into the hall and he, he he talks about the different patients sitting outside in the hall yeah. and they seem to watch Bim okay, and seem to like avert their gaze when they understand that he's talking about them. Yeah. So I'm not sure if I subscribe to that either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't remember where I saw that. Mm. But speaking of the way that he he's like seen hundreds of these and the structure itself is about circles and how they come they come back and they come back. And both visually and storytelling-wise, the film is really using uh, circles as a theme where it starts from a pan from left to right over the city landscape and that action is reversed in the end. And you also see these enclosing circles... Um, after Don takes uh, glasses off the bar, but he refuses the bartender to wipe it off, speaking of like the perfection of the circle as yeah. a geometrical shape. And yeah, just I just love how he tries to, he kind of distalizes everything down to circles, Wilder. Yes, and I think at, at the point in the bar where he does that, it's sort of planting that seed in our in our minds that this this is going to keep going round. Yeah. Um and and by the end of the film it is very much like the start of the film mm-hmm. and you do it on the face of it I think it it seems like a happy ending and he, mm. you think oh great he's he's turned a turned a new leaf now looks like he's going to start writing his novel but then we don't know what happens that evening on the I think it's a Tuesday by the end. Yeah. Don't know what happens on Tuesday evening. Maybe just convince himself that he'll just give him one more drink, yeah, <laughs> uh, and just see if that helps him write the next sentence, and then it could spiral out of control again. Yeah, I mean, when he's he's probably still got alcohol in his system when he's turning the new leaf. Yeah, it seems like he's ha- he hasn't gone through that abstinence period yet, so mm. he'll probably be struggling mm. after he's made that decision at the end of the film. Yeah. I know that Wilder and his partner, uh, Brackett, uh, they've been screenwriting partners for over eight years when they wrote this, and they hadn't shown Jackson, the author of the book, the last pages of the film. And in the book, Don Burnham, he remained unrepentant and unrecovered. Um, and as written first in the, screen, in the screenplay, the movie ended with Helen uh, talking him out of suicide and then getting him to believe in in himself as a writer again. And the final scene, he kind of dictates to her the opening passage of the novel. Uh, he's still drunk, but Helen is pounding away at his typewriter. And the implication is that the ending of the movie is that the hero works out his problems by 
writing the novel that we are watching now. And Jackson himself, he felt that this was sort of a too neat, cheap ending, but also betrayal to his novel. Mm. And he wrote uh, a letter to Bracken and Wilder lamenting the fact that the movie he felt was very distinguished, but it was with one vulgar stroke. It was rendered utterly make-believe. Uh, and after the preview, uh, Brackett, he phoned up Jackson and asking, asking him to come up with an alternate ending. So he wrote a new ending where Burnham, he's left alone with a nearly full whiskey bottle. And after a struggle uh, with himself, he seems to simply drop it off, drop it out of the window. Uh, but he doesn't do any writing. And then three months later, he received the final ending, which is slightly different from the first attempt, but it still has that feeling that he will cure himself by writing the novel The Bottle. Yeah, I, I hadn't um, looked into all the all these uh, uh, alternative mm. versions of the ending, but um, I think I think the way it ties up as it is is mm. qu- it's reasonably neat. I would say yeah. I think that's the best way to describe it. It it feels like there's hope, but it's not uh it's not black and white. Uh it leaves a lot of ambiguity which is um uh, maybe part of its legacy really people keep talking about it. Mm-hmm. Wondering what's going to happen uh over the, over the subsequent weeks. Cuz yeah. he's been struggling with this for what would you say 15 years at least. Yeah. So, seeing that he's, or that he's, it seems like he's had support for the previous six years with his brother, and the previous three years with Helen also in his life. So this this weekend, it seems like it will be just one of many lost weekends. Yeah, I don't think I don't think you get over it um, really in the space of about five minutes, uh, mm. actually. Uh, from the position where he is just before the end of the film where he's um, trying to get rid of Helen so that he can commit suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then five minutes later, it's all sort of fine. I'm going to actually write the novel. Um, and, it, and it does tie up on the face of it, but then uh, we do know the character. We've, we've got to know him quite well over the five-day period and uh, there's always that element of doubt that he's just waiting for her to leave, and uh, I, I can't remember what they do with the with the gun. They, uh, um, I think she. No, has I can't it. remember either. I think he takes it from her in a struggle, but um, then when the typewriter comes, it sort of disappears from the movie. Yeah, and we don't see it. Yeah, and and there is a sort of nice. Um, a nice point in the film where she um, she sort of accepts that he might just be an alcoholic and there's no curing him, mm-hmm. and she she offers to give him some alcohol, get him a drink, as long as she hands as long as he hands the gun over to her. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that just underlines how much she loves him, really, because yeah. he, um, she'd rather have an alcoholic don than no don. Mm-hmm. So uh, perhaps that uh, played into his mindset when he realised that he was um, making a mistake. Yeah. I would have perhaps enjoyed watching his... or watching some of his... in the flashback, how he how he is with her when he's uh, sober and how how she came to fall in love with him. Because most of the time we see Don Burnham as this struggling kind of pathetic alcoholic way at least I can't really fathom what 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 this draw he has over him and also with regards to the Gloria character what makes her fall in love with him or want him that badly when all we see is this figure who's kind of grobbling for the next drink yeah and uh, in the flashback, uh, assuming that it is a flashback and not uh, not the novel, I think that's fairly clear that that's what it is. Mm-hmm. The, the first meeting between Don and Helen um, at the opera, yeah, he's 
is a complete jerk. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, uh, throws her umbrella on the floor, tries to walk away. He's pretty short with her. Um, and but they have, I guess they have a spark. Um, but he'd still rather go home uh, with his drink. He makes an excuse to not not see her, not spend the night with her. Yeah. The, only, the only reason he goes off with her is because he dropped his drink on the floor. Yeah, <laughs> and she's going to a party. So <laughs> she's going to a party. So he thinks, oh right, well there might be some alcohol there. It's a cocktail yeah. party. Um, so it, it is hard at that point because uh, he is. It's definitely clear that he's definitely an alcoholic at that point because he's mm-hmm. um, he's not watching the opera. He's watching uh, some dancing coats with alcohol in the pocket. <laughs> um, he's definitely an alcoholic, and he's definitely trying to get drunk that night. So. It, she she doesn't know him when he's not suffering mm-hmm. from alcoholism. So we assume that there must have been some some small portions of that three year period where he was sober. Yeah. Because otherwise, how, why would she still be with him? She must yeah. see something there. And he says that there was this like six week period before he met her parents, where he didn't have a single drink and everything was like dandy. But mm. the fact that we that we don't get to experience that with them, uh, it kind of yeah, leaves me wanting a bit a bit of that. I think. Yeah, and it, it it's quite a quite a tough scene really with with the parents because he he does seem like he's on the straight and narrow. He's got that present there and he's mm-hmm. willing to meet the parents. So um, I don't think she would have let him do that if she thought that he was really struggling. No, but then. Uh, he clears off. He makes an excuse and and exits. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I I do agree. I don't. We don't really see enough of him sober. We just have to believe that um, that he was that at some point. And yeah, the way that he shoots that um, scene in the hotel where he's Wilder for me is like a, he's a master at building the scene. Uh, in in terms of mise-en-scene where he has Burnham in the foreground, he has the parents in the middle ground and he has Helen in the background on the on the telephone talking with Burnham and the way that he stages the actors in terms of the camera it's just it's so simple and very efficient and very elegant for me and also the opening scene where we see Burnham in the foreground and we see Wick going and opening the door in the background and letting Helen in. Everything is played in one single shot, but he has this this simple yet it must be very very complicated to like figure out where everything is going in the staging of everything. But it, it really looks uh effortless for me. Yeah, and it and it does give it a nice real uh feel. You know, it's not not a studio. Uh, yeah. You can really feel yourself in the scene. Mm-hmm. And and it allows um, everything to play out in the background, mm-hmm. and and it, and it adds a lot of tension to it because it's not um, they're still on 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 the scene, they're still on, on screen. Sorry, um, yeah, as he's talking. So yeah, it's a it's a great technique that um, Wilder was very good at. Mm-hmm. And he, he and for this film, he shot on he shot on location rather than recreating any scenery on a soundstage and. From what I've read, the cameras they were concealed like inside delivery trucks and empty storefronts and mm. I think I read a story where Milland he was recognized by a motorist who happened to know someone at Paramount and <laughs> they rang them up saying that they just saw Ray Milland dread dead drunk on Third Avenue and someone should try to get a hold of him and straighten him out. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of funny. That's classic. Um yeah, you can imagine it going ending up on uh, sort of gossip pages, can't yeah. you? Yeah, <laughs> this actor's lost his way. What's he doing? And there's a, a production on the other side of the street filming him. And yeah, it's realised. Ray Milan, he he like he takes this role and he really runs with it. I mean, everyone was warning him that he was committing career suicide taking this role, and had a bit he had been turned down from everyone from Cary Grant to Gary Cooper. And like the columns 
1944, they were buzzing about who would play this, but no one dared to touch it. And I think he was coached by Charles Jackson himself about how to play drunk, actually. And deservedly, he won an Oscar for his performance. And he's not afraid to like embrace the humiliation that he goes through, but he, he kind of revels in it. Yeah, and it's a it's a deep role. Uh, uh, there's a lot of character there, uh, mm-hmm. a, or a lot of um, scope for a great actor like mm-hmm. Ray Milan to uh, to really get to grips with the story and, and add a lot of meat to it, because it's not just a. Um, I, I, perhaps people were avoiding it because they didn't want to do a. Uh, they'd seen a lot of comic drunks in films, and they uh, this yeah. was. Uh, I don't know if it was the first, but probably one of the first serious um, stories about alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's new ground, uh, and I, I'm sure if I was a um, Hollywood actor, I would be jumping at jumping at a script like this if I was being offered it. Yeah, um, and it's his film uh, as well. It's it's all just him. Yeah, it's uh, riding on him. Yeah, everything else is built around him. If they, if the lead actor got it wrong, then the film falls flat and it's not classic. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't be talking about it. Yeah, um, it, it's not just a. I'm a little bit depressed because I drink a little bit too much and I can't <laughs> write the next next page or the first page. Uh, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, just that how he portrays that desperation and that. That agony, and also the way that when he finally gets a drink, he sees it as a defeat, but something he couldn't avoid. Almost, he manages to exude that sort of feeling effortlessly for me. Yeah, and there's a scene where he's—I think he's torn his apartment uh, apart, and he can't find any more alcohol. He's just desperate to to get one more drink. And um, he puts his head back and looks up, and there's this sort of reflection of a bottle from the light above him. Mm. And he realizes that he's going to be able to get one more drink. And it and it is it's all in his in his face. There's nothing else yeah. on the screen. It's uh, it's not like he's in the in the. Um, I think it's just a close up shot of his face, and mm. it's it's um, it's really sad. Yeah, it's, it's a really sad moment because he's he's obviously quite happy. Um, and we're thinking, well, at least he's going to not be able to drink anymore, even though he's quite sad at the moment. But uh, it's even worse when he when you realise that he's going to be able to get something out of it as well. Hmm. It's interesting how Wilder sh- attempts to shoot this movie through this. It has this sort of post-war European cinema feel to it, and this is comes it comes out just at that time where the main period of neorealism is at its. It's at its infancy, and that post World War Two mentality has it's clearly made its way over the Atlantic. But also the fact that the personal history uh, that you talked about earlier with him losing uh, his close ones. But while he's he's staying true to the emotional honesty, but he never sacrifices that sort of noirish style that he has with this kind of drab and gritty black and white cinematography and it emphasizes this the alcohol as a sort of menacing warping power that it has yeah um and it's it's certainly very gritty and Mm um i'm sure that there would have been studios crying out for um you know big musicals things that will make people happy and and you could see where they were coming from from that. Um, yeah. Everyone's quite depressed globally. These are films that will ship out to the rest of the world. You know, half half the world is uh, devastated by World War Two, mm-hmm. and Wilder thinks, "Yeah, I know what I'll do. I'll I'll do a really depressing film about an alcoholic who um, <laughs> can't can't write a page of his story." And you can see why. Um, it would be a cautious approach to that because it doesn't seem like a very good idea. Hmm. Um, but it's um, one that paid off. Yeah, definitely. And Jane Wyman, surely she was 
overlooked in my eyes for a nomination for a supporting role. And the dynamic between her and and Raymond Land is just it's really great and the chemistry between them is I mean I think for me it's evident that they have real chemistry mm. and she really does care for him. Yeah. Um and there's a, the, they have the sort of in jokes where um he's a bit too tall for her. So yeah. every time she, she wants to kiss him she has to say, uh, bend down or or I think it's that's the word she uses, bend down. So mm-hmm. and and it, there is that sort of playfulness there that you can't just act or, or somewhere subconsciously as a viewer, you know, it's acting when it's not really there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't know whether I've seen her in, um, many of the films. I probably have. Uh, but I can't, I can't recall where I've seen her. His face, no. face seems familiar. Yeah. Um, I recognize the name, but I can't. Uh, I can't place her at the moment in any other film there. Yeah. Um and that that adds a lot of um a lot to his character because um because she's so dedicated to him and there's that playfulness <laughs> that there must have been a period at some point where they were able to build this um rapport up, really. Yeah. Because otherwise if he's just an alcoholic, if if how we're seeing him is how he is all the time, then um, we're, there's no way anyone would fall in love with him. Yeah. Our mind kind of fills in that, that blank for us. Yeah. Because if, it, if there was just a brother who, by the time we see him, is, is sick of it, really. He, mm-hmm. He's quite happy to take him away because he thinks he's on the straight and narrow. But um, I think deep down, he's just... Uh, at the end of the road as as far as uh giving a shit about him really yeah um so it's um if there was just that character there and the other sort of support characters uh we probably wouldn't feel um as warm towards don as we do yeah and she also kind of serves as the the alternate female figure of someone like gloria who's is she uh, a prostitute? I, I think she is in the film, but yeah, at least she's kind of the the darker version, the one who we. I don't. I don't think she would weigh up um, the Don Burnham character in the same way that uh, Helen is. Yeah, um, because really, if it, if it was just Gloria there as the as a love interest, then. There would be the element of is she just doing it because um, sometimes he gives her money. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it would it would add nothing emotionally to the character, which no. um, is what we do get from Helen. How do you feel about the character Gloria? Because for um, me, she's maybe a bit over the top with the abbreviations and the quick fire words and the finger guns and whatnot. She doesn't feel like a a real character to me. No, um, she's, she's quite annoying yeah. <laughs> uh, at times. Uh, and, um, I don't know whether the, the casting was spot on for that. Um, I felt a little bit like, uh, Doris Dowling, I think her name is. She was perhaps not very natural in the role. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this was one of her first films that she was, was in. Okay. Yeah, and, and there is that. I, th- I think it was a bit of a. Um, I think I read somewhere that that was that was a role that was discussed by the censors more than um, uh, other elements of the film. Okay. Uh, I th- I think uh, maybe wrong in that, but um, because they weren't sure they wanted to have a um, a prostitute in the film, and and it is sort of dumbed down. It could just be that she's a, uh, maybe not a. A prostitute, or I don't, I don't know, um, someone who spends time with men for money but doesn't, uh, necessarily sleep with them. But I don't know. Yeah. Um, it, it does, she is a shallow character, uh, perhaps mm. one that isn't really padded out properly, mm. uh, in a way that, um, Nat the barman also isn't padded out fully, but doesn't really need to be because he's a, he's a stock barman who, 
could appear in many of the films. Yeah. He just sort of stands there, listens to his woes, gives him drink when he gives him money, and then that's it. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. And he comes up with the typewriter at the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Quite, quite key in the end, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was initially released without a musical score, this film, but... The, the reception was uh, poor and it was pulled from distribution and then it was re-released with an original score from uh, Miklos Rocha. Mm. And it has that kind of eerie score where it was also one of the first to use electronic music in a feature film featuring mm. the, the, the theremin. Mm. And it creates this sort of distorted perceptions of the reality that Burnham is experiencing. I think it's a, a character in itself, really. Um, mm-hmm. It adds a lot to the alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. The the theremin, I think, is a motif used when he, certainly in the first scene, I think it continues throughout. As it, the music's very orchestral. And then as soon as he thinks about alcohol, the theremin kicks in. He looks yeah. out the window, he glances out. We've already seen it. But as soon as he's thinking about it, then that, then that kicks in and that I think continues throughout. And it's almost like a, um, something you'd expect from a, uh, like a B movie horror film or something like that. It's really eerie. Yeah. They uh, use this for a lot of science fiction films in the fifties. Yeah. And although this, um, predates all of that, then, mm-hmm. uh, um, I still think it holds that it, it turns the, the bottle into this sort of evil monster that is trying to, um, capture our uh hero Mm -hmm. so yeah it's it's quite interesting yeah i think it was the second attempt as well i think the uh the guy um miklos rosa had already provided that it went out as a as a preview without any music and i think he provided one score that was a bit more jazz oriented and then okay he, he replaced it with the the one we hear yeah um i don't know if you if you read about um the other things that he'd done in the same year. No, I hadn't. Um, he got nominated for three soundtracks in the same year. Okay. <laughs> uh, so it was also a Hitchcock Spellbound and a song to remember as well. Ah, okay. But I think he won for Spellbound. Yeah, which is brilliant. So. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of like alcohol and how it is, like the, the music kind of builds that as a character of its own, and many of the the booze-soaked scenes, they are shot either through or it has the presence of numerous like whiskey bottles and shot glasses everywhere. And that's when we hear the music, especially when it tries to play up these uh, these bottles and alcohol as a character that is looming over Don Burnham. And, and I kind of rival, as Helen puts it herself, to her. Yeah, um, it is a character in itself, and I think the music does... Um, build that as well. In mm-hmm. fact, it, it's the only character in the film that has its own musical motif. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I think without this music, I think the, um, I think the, the, the film will be a lot less. I'm not, uh, I don't suppose we can actually see a version without the music attached to it, but. It would have been interesting if we had a soundtrack where there was no music, just the, like, diegetic sound. Yeah. Uh, I think it would be a lesser film for it, so I think yeah. it's a it's a um, success of the of the score, really. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else? I I just think it's a it's a great film. It's it's one one that's worth buying as well yeah. because the disc includes the uh, quite extensive bonus features. It's got the uh, the radio play, which um, I haven't listened to. Um, I listened to about five minutes. It seemed pretty much just like the film. Mm-hmm. just without any uh, visuals to go with it. But then in 1946, they couldn't buy the Blu-ray and watch it at home. <laughs> so it did give people at home a chance to experience it again. Um, but it also includes the um, the Volker Schlondorf um, three-part uh, series that was out in, on, mm-hmm. the, on the BBC in the early 90s. I don't know if you got a chance to see any of that. I watched it when I first received the disc uh, last year, I think, but I didn't have time this time around. But it, it was, I think it's three hours and it's, mm. it goes into every detail of its filmography. So Yeah, it's very extensive. Um, if you uh, if you wanted to know what Billy Wilder thinks about 
any of his particular films that, that were released, it splits into three, and I think it covers about seven or eight films in each episode. Mm. So, I mean, we're talking early 90s, so he's he's quite old and quite reflective of it all, but um, it's quite interesting to see his, see that those sort of insights, and if you only wanted to find out about one or two films, then you can find those in there. Yeah. And he, he, he speaks mainly in German as well, which is quite unusual, because usually you see him speaking in English, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's probably one of my favourite masses of cinema releases, to be honest, because of because mm-hmm. of that. Not just the film, which I absolutely love, but the uh, the bonus features. I think that the the disc itself is beautiful, but also the the DVD cover is quite a beautiful piece of artwork. Yeah, I don't know if that was the original poster. Uh, it's certainly a great piece of art in itself. I think it came out around the same time as Dublin Indemnity. Yeah, uh, in the release schedule, um, and they they sit together quite nicely. Mm. Um, I love it when they do these kind of double features uh, as releases. Mm. When they get to uh, by a director and releases them at the same time, and they they sort of come, they sort of uh, belong together in that this one reflects uh, Chandler and Wilder's relationship on Double Indemnity. Yes, yes, and uh, they are films that uh, weren't being watched together. Yeah. Uh, they were released back to back in uh, 44, 45, I think, as well. So. Yeah. Um, and also just to see how Wilder's, he, he retains the same sort of style over the, both of the films, but they're clearly two different sort of stories, but you can still see Wilder as a creator behind it all. Yeah, I think it's a um they they almost feel like they're set in the same world. Yeah. Um, in a way that if you watched um Some Like It Hot or Sabrina immediately afterwards, yeah, they're, exactly. they're separate films, completely different. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they they look uh, the way they finish, the way the um the colouring and depth works out, it, it, it they're so similar. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't think I have anything else to add. But where can we find you online, Sam? Well, I mentioned earlier my uh, my website. It's cinemaetc.co.uk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, call me Samuel. Uh, nice memorable name there. Um, <laughs> go and find me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Excellent. Great. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Sam. Uh, no problem. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, you can find us at mocast.blogspot.com or you can send us an email at mustofcinemacast.gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook and just search for Masters of Cinemacast. So thank you for listening and uh, until next time, goodbye.